You've seen the best. You've seen the worst. Now here's the rest of both worlds. I'm Gayfesh, and as I get older, I understand why Riker sits like that. And I'm Ari, and Jean-Luc can carry my suitcase anytime. And I'm Manda, who will never, ever tell Wesley to shut up. And today we will be discussing the Star Trek The Next Generation episode, Haven. But first, Manda, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm super excited to chat about this with y'all. I'm very excited you're here, too. <laughs> One of my first things I ever met knew when I met you and knew about you is that you were a huge Trekkie. So I'm excited to have you here. Yeah, I'm, I'm living my best 90s kid life right now. I have my purple scrunchie in my hair and my Elizabeth Arden sunflowers on. <laughs> and like, I'm ready to be present in this moment with y'all. Awesome. <laughs> so why don't you go ahead and tell us uh, your relationship with Star Trek? Uh, so I became a Trekkie in middle school when The Next Generation was in its first run because one of my best friends and writing partners, with whom I am still friends, by the way, told me I should watch it and picked a specific episode for me to watch that he knew I would like because he knew me very well. Uh, I am hoping to come back on this podcast when that episode comes up later on a few seasons down the road. And since then, I have written copious amounts of fan fiction, including being part of a big fan film series. And um, just this last year, I had an article published on StarTrek.com. So hashtag goals. <laughs> awesome. What was the name of that uh, the Star Trek fan film that you were in? I was part of the Star Trek Phoenix ecosystem of fan films. The one that I star in and wrote on my own is called Third Degree. And I get to speak a whole lot of very quick Trek no babble. It's all engineering nice. talk. And it was <laughs> crazy fun. There's a, a pizza place uh, called Flying Saucer Pizza that I used to do uh, trivia night at. And their whole thing is like very sci-fi themed. And they actually had one of the prop doors from that series. They used to play our episodes on their in-house TV. Yeah, and I, Yeah, I remember seeing your face up there. and was like, wait, that, that's Manda. <laughs> yes. That would throw me off so bad because I'd be like, hey, that's my what's my friend doing on your TV? <laughs> that's amazing. Every time I see you in anything I do that, though, I'm like, that's my Manda. <laughs> I definitely had people messaging me about my Geico commercial for like ever. And I always know when they start running it again in some part of the country because I'll get DMs <laughs> be like, hey, I saw your Geico commercial like that commercial is eight years old, but I'm super glad they're still using it. <laughs> I didn't even know you were in a Geico I was going to say, I don't think I know that one. I am. There's one when the gecko is on the Seattle ferry and I am right behind the gecko. Nice. Oh, I interesting. I That's co-starred so cool. with the gecko. That's like my big claim to fame <laughs> moment. Oh, that's great. All right, let's get into the episode. Okay, our episode that we're covering this week is Haven. It's the 11th episode in the first season. It first aired on the 30th of November, 1987. The teleplay was tr by Tracy Torme. The story by w was by Tracy Torme and Len Okun. And it was directed by Richard Compton. Tensions mount as Counselor Troy's arranged marriage nears, and her mother takes a liking for Captain Picard. Meanwhile, a flagship threatens the planet where they are meeting. Okay, let's get into it. So, Amanda, why did you want to be here for this episode? What is it about this episode that brought you on the show that you were like, please let me be for this one? Okay, so um, anyone who's read my article on StarTrek.com or had anything more than like a 10-minute conversation <laughs> with me knows that uh, the Imzadi ship is life, and I <laughs> seriously live for it, and the, the shippy moments in this episode, uh, I watched yesterday, and I did not write down exactly when, I yelled, oh, my heart. Uh, but it was like six <laughs> times. So it's, just, it's the it's the interrelational stuff and the way that Jonathan Frakes and Marina Sirtis play that uh, with each other and with the rest of the cast. Just it makes this episode juicy and, and delightful. And yeah, love it very much. I agree. I loved the stuff between them. I was like, oh, that's so awesome. I, I Especially in the holodeck. That was some of my favorite moments of the entire episode. The, you mean the, the bisexual skylighting holodeck? Indeed. indeed. Yes, that, that one. I just, yeah. I love romantic angst in all its forms. And this is particular. Uh, spoilers. Uh, the fact that the ship is endgame just makes it better. <laughs> you, know, you know what's going somewhere. Good. What I think is interesting is that like because obviously i've seen everything the jealousy that Riker displays here isn't really something that comes up again maybe it's just this is the episode where he needs to realize that if she's not endgame for him 
that he has to let it go and this is the episode where it happens but she's had other relationships and he's always been supportive of it yeah um it there is a book that i highly recommend everyone go and read it's called imzadi it's by peter david i've read it the uh the number of times i quote that book during this episode is going to be a thing i will probably put it out (laughs) on twitter that if someone can come back to me and tell me how many times i quote it i will send them something because I will quote it a lot. And in the book, one of the things it talks about, it's not like either one of them had lived like a monk in the intervening years. So mm-hmm. like they were both well aware that they both went out and had full lives. But now that they're looking each other in the eye again, it changes everything. You know, um, I remember when I first read that book, I realized, oh, this was written before Second Chances. Among other things, it gives Riker the wrong middle name. Middle name thing, yeah. Oh, really? What was his middle name? I don't remember what it was in the book. It was Thelonious. Yeah. Thelonious. But in canon, it's Thomas. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Okay. <laughs> Back to the episode. Can we talk about the casting of Wyatt? I thought he was great. Did you not like him? I don't care how much you put him in the Kylo Ren boyfriend sweater. Teabag from Prison Break is never going to be a romantic lead. I'm sorry. Kylo Ren boyfriend sweater. I mean, that's so true, though. (laughs) My thing with him is when you look at him holistically as a character, uh, you do have to forgive the 1987 hair. Yeah, I do. um, Which I know know Ari and I are going to talk about hairdos again later because we both had a Beverly moment. But... (laughs) forgiving of the hair the fact that he is this like super in touch with his feelings really gentle soul a healer like all of that reads very well in the physicality this actor gave the character so yeah i don't buy him as like guy who could steal a girl from Riker. come on but i do (laughs) buy him as gentle healer sweet that that part of it i think works for me I agree. Yeah, I thought he did the whole like gentle soul doctor thing very well. I spent most of the episode thinking, where do I know this guy from? And then when I looked it up on IMDb, he's been in like 150 things. I just know him from from being in everything. Yeah. He's been in like a drop in character in a ton of shows. So one of those that guy who character actor. Yeah, like, he's he's done everything. His most iconic role is Teabag on Prison Break, who's like the most despicable character on that show. Oh, is and- he? That's yeah, that's when I see him like that's immediately where my mind goes. So I'm just like, no, I'm sorry. This dude like, uh, uh-uh, no, no, Deanna, red flag, <laughs> run away. <laughs> OK, so can we just talk about how now I understand how O'Brien gets a job in the transporter room? Because two different times in this episode, people just transport things on or off their ship against their will. <laughs> like there's the thing where they're like oh there's the in the sidewalk from doctor who shows up or ma- the top half of han solo whatever you want to call that thing that shows up and talks to them yeah that very oh, you mean cork in a box it, yeah that guy <laughs> it's so funny because it looks so out of place when your star trek sensibilities are picard and disco but in 1987, mm-hmm. when the Star Trek sensibilities were the original series, the cartoon, and 10 episodes of TNG, that thing totally fits in. And it's exactly the kind of VFX <laughs> and the kind of shenanigans that you would expect. <laughs> yeah. Um, at first, I was like, oh, it's Han Solo. <laughs> but um, then at the end, he he beams himself over because he he knocks the other guy out or whatever and i was like well no wonder they move o'brien to the transporter room people are constantly using it wrong <laughs> i definitely have a head cannon that like the galaxy class starship was reasonably new when the enterprise was commissioned and so i feel like maybe this is a new thing that you could use the transporters in that way and they hadn't sort of realized that they ought to be staffed properly oh that's an interesting thought yeah <laughs> I think the Enterprise is staffed exactly as much as it needs to be for the plot to happen. That is true. That is very true. If security needs to be bad for that episode, they will be. And uh, you know what? Um, I don't know. I, I kind of want to be a fly on the wall for the uh, the security review meetings. <laughs> well, so, yeah, this thing gets beamed aboard. Like, oh, something is being beamed aboard right now. And Tasha, like, sits on the edge of the transporter pad. Like, she's not there poised to receive whatever it is with even the little tiny Type 1 phaser in her hand. No, no, she's just seated. 
<laughs> yeah, she's just there. And, you know, she interrupted Riker's sexy harp lady time, too. I know. So she thought it was important enough to bring Riker down, but... Like, it's just hanging out on the edge of the transporter. Right? If, like, some giant Borg guy had been who transported over, he could have kicked her in the head from his spot on the transporter pad, and none would have been the wiser. So, yeah, bless Tasha's heart. She, uh, she was given some bad blocking in that scene. Well, (laughs) but also you have to consider it came from the planet Haven, which, from all... All appearances seems to be like uh, nothing bad can come from there except for Luxana Troy. So okay, fair. I will give you that. That yes, it was coming from like the most benign planet possible. So I caught a little bit of continuity error though because the episode two episodes before they dropped Deanna off to um, go visit her family, but then when we see this episode, she hasn't seen her mother or her family in a really long time, and obviously they imply that her father has passed away. So she wasn't visiting her family unless it was some other family two episodes ago. They just wanted an excuse for Deanna not to be there, I guess. I'm not entirely sure, but it seemed like a weird continuity error to me. I have an answer for that, and the answer is those episodes aired out of order. Haven was the fourth episode produced. So they recorded it before, they filmed it before, and then... So they it wasn't an accident that they had that continuity error. Interesting. And, well, I mean, it was an yeah, it was an accident in that they uh, ordered the episodes around differently. And I think the uh, episode that Deanna doesn't appear in, Hide and Q, I I think it was like a, a rush thing, like she suddenly couldn't be available, so they gave all her lines to Tasha or something. Oh, I also thought maybe they didn't want her around Q in that episode, but that's <laughs> that's whatever. Yeah. Oh, so um, where is Wesley this whole episode, guys? <laughs> oh, he's not in this one, sir. Not appearing in this film. Um, yeah. yeah. He, so he just was gone. Yeah. <laughs> if we look it up, we can probably figure out where Will Wheaton was at the time. Uh, early on, he was given quite a few days off in order to shoot other things and do other work. Um, so he was probably he was probably busy. He was probably making a movie somewhere. Um, that is actually one of the things, meta-wise, that caused Will to eventually leave the show was they started bullying him around his schedule. And uh, mm. when he got cast in Milos Forman's Valmont, they wouldn't give him the time off to go shoot it. And then wound up not on the call sheet for those days anyway. So we had to give up this job that would have been really amazing in order to supposedly be available for the series he was under contract for. And then they didn't use him those days. And it was it was gross. So, um, mm, yeah, that's frustrating. This was probably just in the era where he needed those days off. I just wanted to see him get ready for the wedding. I know, right? Because <laughs> I feel like Wesley's wedding sweater would be amazing. Yeah. Oh, he'd have the best wedding <laughs> sweater. I know. I mean, Although when you first said get ready for the wedding, my mind immediately went to, oh, God, no, I definitely don't want the kid at a Betazoid wedding. Where they're all naked. I mean, yeah, that's yeah. true. I <laughs> forgot about the naked part. <laughs> Indeed, except for like. 12-year-old me at the time would have been intrigued by the possibility. <laughs> well, 12-year-old you would have been at an appropriate age for yeah, that kind of thing. For sure. Yeah, I'm 36, and I don't want to see Will Wheaton naked at any age, especially under. <laughs> yeah. Let's talk about um, the scandal that was Jean-Luc carrying the suitcase, because the way that Jordi and Data looked at each other, I was dying. Like, they were like, oh my goodness, the captain's carrying <laughs> that suitcase. And I thought it was hilarious. It was really good. Patrick Stewart was so funny. Just he was the, so good in that. Yeah, he was like his comedic timing was on point. Yeah. The the faces that he makes where he's just trying to be genial, where he's just like, get me the hell away from this woman. Oh, my God. <laughs> I, I, I don't want to make her mad in front of her daughter, but like, I got to get out of here. Oh, my God. One of the best lines that was written for the whole first season is when Deanna looks at Jean-Luc and goes, my mother is a little eccentric because it was just that best like downplaying of what we were about to see and then Majel Barrett just bursts in and is this ball of banana pants I know it's so good just so well he is that perfect straight man to her wild lady and and 
Ari, I'm so excited for you to see this relationship develop across the seasons because this is not her only guest appearance. And oh, good. I'm glad we get to see her again. I mean, the you may go line when she's like dismissing him was so good. So good. It's so good. <laughs> and it only gets better. Um, I am not going to spoil anything for you, but there there will be Shakespeare lines spoken at some juncture. Um, <laughs> awesome. I, I kind of want to talk about the decision to give Luxana a brash American accent, because like I before that point, you get the implication that like Deanna's accent is a Betazoid accent, but it's obviously not because Luxana's Betazoid, full Betazoid, and she just talks like an American. I mean, she was married to the EP, so <laughs> yeah. Well, but also behind the scenes, uh, Marina Sirtis had actually like been bugging Rick Berman about this apparently for years because like she's just like, well, I thought this was supposed to be my alien accent, but here you've cast my mother and she just gets an American accent, and then Rick Berman goes, oh, oh. oh it's it's your dad's accent and then um, earth, what up? yeah it's but it's not really an earth accent and then in a later episode we get a flashback and we meet her dad and her dad just has an american accent and so then when that episode happens she goes to rick Berman, she's like what the hell rick where's my accent from <laughs> and rick goes they sent you off to boarding school stop bothering me well so that oh no the whole reason that she has to do the accent to begin with is as they were heading into film the pilot they said to her you're going to need to do an accent because the captain is British and we can't have two Brits on the bridge. And she was like, mm. why can't he do an accent? He's supposed to be French. Well, they tried that and it was <laughs> and horrible. It didn't, the reason is it didn't work. So they made her do an accent. So they didn't have two British accents on the bridge at one time, which just feels, I mean, okay, it was 1986. I'm going to excuse it only for that reason, because now two British people on the same bridge of a starship with a bunch of Americans and a Klingon and an Android um, wouldn't be that weird. Yeah. Like I'm trying to think the original series had Scotty. Is that the only accent was Scotty and Chekhov? Oh, and Chekhov. So yeah, there's two in the, I was like, there's such a diverse cast in the original series. How have there not been two accents before? <laughs> yeah. It was just short sightedness and probably a touch of misogyny on the part of, I mean, I'm not going to say Rick Berman's name too loud, but <laughs> uh, listen, we, we can shit on Rick Berman all we want in here. <laughs> He's not going <laughs> to listen. This is a, this is a safe space. <laughs> this is a safe um, space for anti-Rick Berman sentiments. So, okay, so I want just another data moment that I really liked in this episode is when they're all in, like, the reception dinner and the two ladies start fighting, the two moms start fighting, and they keep cutting to data, and he's just got this, like happy like shit-eating grin face going on every time they're fighting and why is old ladies fighting data's jam why oh, it's well it's not the old ladies fighting it's just the the human interaction the bickering the the oh, the cattiness it's just he's like ooh, this is something i usually don't get to see on the starship because everyone here gets along by studio mandate well and also like jean-luc <laughs> even points it out he's like um traditionally in the federation we're having a party we don't allow people to fight so I hereby declare that all disagreements resolve. Like Jean-Luc literally comes out and says that. So, <laughs> so the fact that Data is seeing like bad party manners, especially. He's so amused by it. And too, these are people yeah. who are clearly aristocratic, right? Like Loxana comes all in, daughter of the fifth house, holder of the sacred chalice of Reeks, heir to the holy rings of Beta Z. Like she is very much about who she is in the wider world. And here she is behaving badly so of course data is gonna like eat that up <laughs> but yeah i loved that declare all disagreements resolved thing that was so funny i was like i wish that worked in real life <laughs> we could just be like hey hey i declare all disagreements resolved guys <laughs> let's move on and it was a great technique on behalf of the writer of this episode because we all know from real life from writing books from writing other pieces of fiction that the only way to cut away from those two people bickering in that moment was to find a way to make them stop and not start up again. Yeah. So <laughs> having the captain be like, nope, you're done. <laughs> Shut it gave, down. Yeah, yeah it, it gave the camera <laughs> operator someplace else to go, and then the story could move forward. So I know that the gong was just there to be annoying, but why did the riffraff guy keep hitting the gong over and over again? Just to be annoying, or was it really the tradition? It's the Betazoid tradition to get so things So really was a tradition? Because to yeah. me, it actually felt like maybe it was there to, like, they were deliberately doing it to be obnoxious. I wasn't sure if it was true Betazoid tradition or not. Well, 
I, I'm sorry. What makes you? What about Betazoid tradition makes you think it's not deliberately obnoxious? Like, <laughs> oh, that's a good point. You've met Luxana. <laughs> that's the thing. It's sort of if you've ever been to a very like high church Episcopal service of something, they can make every moment extra extra pompous if they care to. <laughs> but it's really only in service of their own pomposity. And this is the kind of thing that I feel like she probably doesn't do every day. But to reinforce her dominance over the Millers and to reinforce the fact that she is the greater aristocrat in the room, they're going to do every annoying bit of service. Yeah. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah. Just to like, so that she is the dominant personality in the room in case anyone was wondering. So should we bring up that um, that she calls Riker Bill again? <laughs> <laughs> it drove me nuts for the second time my brain was like bill <laughs> bill <laughs> yeah i thought that she only called him bill in the naked now i was like yeah no it won't happen again she calls him will after that but no it happened here it happened uh, obviously again. it doesn't stick because everyone else recognized you no he's not a bill don't do that well most now. most williams don't go by both and everyone else calls him will so i kept wondering why like is she just like giving him the wrong nickname or why does she is it supposed to be more intimate like my brother's a bill my brother's a billy he's but he we have never once called him will or willie you know the in universe explanation for some of us anyway, again, it's in the book, is um, that it is a nickname she had come up with for him when they were together before. And it is uh, a reminder. He reminds her of a shaving cream that her father used to use. And it is similar sounding word. Bill is a similar sounding word to the name of this shaving cream. So it's a reference to shaving cream. And so in that way, it is like really intimate that it's just this thing that no one else ever called him. Did Peter David come up with that answer? Yeah, Peter David came up with that answer. That sounds like something Peter David would write. Yes, it's 100% a Peter David thing. Uh, but yeah, so anytime she calls him Bill, just hear shaving cream. <laughs> shaving cream. Oh, yes. You smell just like Old Spice, Bill. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think Imzadi is probably a little bit nicer of a nickname than Bill. Indeed. <laughs> Speaking of, can we talk about the holodeck scene? Oh, yes. All day long. Absolutely. <laughs> the the way that Deanna talked about how humans have trouble uh, separating... Platonic love from physical love? Mm -hmm. It actually reminded me of Greek Bible study. Uh, the Bible uses different words in, in Greek uh, for uh, for love. There's... Uh, eros, which is romantic, uh, sexual love. Like erotica. Yeah. yeah. There's uh, phileo, which is brotherly love. Like Philadelphia. <laughs> yeah. And agape, which is like a, a more of a pure uh, love, and it, probably in a platonic ideal. It made me think like, boy, English really could use some of those. Yeah. We really could. For sure. Yeah. that's a, I use that point all the time when I'm talking about Greek language. I use the example of the three types of love because we're so limited in the English language sometimes in the way that we describe things. And I like the, the concept that she's like, well, sometimes humans get attached just because we did the, the Eros type of love into the, you know, other types or whatever. And I thought that was a really interesting point because we do, as humans, sometimes confuse the two even among people that we're like intimate with you know and it also suggests to me that imzadi itself is not a it, it's not an eros it's an agape love mm -hmm. that's an interesting point yeah i don't know i love that scene though the whole scene the whole thing where she's in rikers off there pouting i thought it was very not typical Riker and so I thought it was interesting that it was brought up because we've seen them go to the planet in injustice like we've seen them be around other people but now because it's marriage now because it's going to take her away from the ship he is you know sulking out in the holodeck and I found that really interesting and also she gets fed up at the party and storms out and where does she go she goes to find him oh yeah that's a good point I didn't like she doesn't really go that. to her room. Uh, there are multiple holodecks on this ship. She could have gone to any of the other holodecks if what she wanted was a holodeck experience. She went to find him because that is her her emotional home base, her place of grounding. That is her person. That is who she talks to when things go horrible. So right. she she used those powers of telepathy to find where he was and... And went to, to him instead of 
any of the other gazillion places she could go. And it sort of just proves the point that those holodecks need dang locks on them. (laughs) I think they do sometimes. Do they? Yeah, well, actually, we're going to be coming up to an episode here pretty soon where the lock doesn't disengage. Yep. Oh, that's right. Yes, we are. Uh, So I, I, again, this is totally headcanon, but I feel like that was a deliberate choice on his part not to lock her out. Oh, that's true. But he also didn't lock out nice hair guy, 80s hair guy. What is his name? Wyatt. Wyatt. Oh, that's why I can't remember it. I have an ex named Wyatt. All right. I I now have to tell you about this piece of uh, Star Trek lore because it happens in this scene. I'm ready. There is a a version of one of Troy's lines that didn't make it into the the final cut for a lot of reasons. Probably the one I'm about to uh, list that they're talking about, like, I still have feelings for you, but you want to be a starship captain and you can't separate your know, friend love from from physical love and there is a line that was i don't think wyatt would mind if we stayed friends mm-hmm. but marina sardis kept flubbing the line and there is videotape vhs tape that used to get passed around at star trek conventions of her going i don't think wyatt would mind if we f- what's the line <laughs> would cut it off and i don't think wyatt would mind if we f- that's great. <laughs> well, I mean, because they can separate out all the different kinds of love, I would assume that they have more of a polyamorous type, <laughs> you know, relationship right? with each other. Yeah. Right? I mean, or maybe we're just writing it that way. <laughs> yeah, just the way she delivered that line that time, that's probably why it didn't wind up in the finished cut. They probably could not get through it without laughing after that. But so that scene forever <laughs> went down in Star Trek outtakes infamy that's funny every shot of Riker's face in that scene was another oh my heart because as you will see the the more you rewatch old episodes after seeing episodes farther down the line the more this subtext grows these actors mm-hmm. all do just a phenomenal job of keeping that real and raw and he is, this is not a guy who tends to wear his heart on his sleeve. No, so. no, not at all. He's got kind of that like masculine bravado going on that he doesn't really need to let people see when he's hurting or down. But he's clearly trying to figure out how to deal with this. That's why he's stolen off to the holodeck or whatever. Yeah, it's it's really, really beautiful. And it's really, really well done. And it just uh, <laughs> launched a thousand um, fanfics. I bet it did. Um, so I really liked that they did tie Deanna's hair into the mom's hair. I know this is a complete departure, but I was just thinking about how the the mom had like the beads and the gems and stuff in her hair. So I thought there was a lot of consistent costuming across the two of them that I really liked. But it brings us back to Beverly's hair. So in, in the in the dinner party scene, her hair was pulled back and for a minute, you know, kind of like that episode of Parks and Rec when Leslie goes to the barber to get the haircut that all the politicians get and they like comb it back into like a man's cut essentially Uh, that's how bev had her hair and i was like oh no she cut all her off i was so upset and then i realized it was just pulled back at the top of the episode she has the biggest hair she has in the whole series um i had forgotten that they let her hair get that big it was very (laughs) 1986 and then yeah all of a sudden it looks like she's got it like high and tight and we're like no yeah, but then I know. <laughs> later in sick bay she's let her hair down again and it's not quite as big as it was at the beginning of the episode but it is all there once again tasha's hair too at the dinner was um, oh it was amazing really it was big. all like slicked up and like waved over yeah mm-hmm. <laughs> it was something <laughs> but uh diana's tro- the diana's uh hair in and uh, the dinner was gorgeous it I, was. I love that 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 tall ponytail knot. Very Ariana Grande. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. And Marina Sirtis didn't like the bun. Like she refers uh-huh. to it as the bad bun hairdo. And so the fact that they gave her at least like some length, something to to go with there. Uh, but I, I'm gonna I'm gonna take it back to the book now. Um, the the Imzadi the book explanation for that hair is that she had worn it at some point and Will didn't like it. Oh, so on the Enterprise, she purposely wore it to remind him that this is not the time and the place. 
What do we think about the whole I'm just going to follow through with my duty and get married to this guy even though I don't love him thing? Because I thought it was interesting that she was going to kind of betray her own emotions for someone who's so emotionally in tune with herself and others to just like say, oh, well, my emotion doesn't matter. Tradition is more important. Obviously, she gets out of it in the end, but I thought it was an interesting choice rather than to fight for her right to be able to love the person that she gets married to. I mean, I feel like it's a lifetime of indoctrination situation. I think it's, it's very much that that kids who came up in a cult who don't realize that they have brought some of that with them out of the cult until it looks them in the face and then you have to make the choice of what have I been told literally every day of my entire life is the right thing and the good thing and the proper thing and the only thing. Right. Or do I do the scary thing? And and so sh- I noticed that she said in the episode something like, I didn't think it would come. I'm so far out. Like that kind of stuff. She didn't know it was coming. So how did they know she was going to be at Haven? Uh, Luoxana has connections. Oh, okay. So that's probably, like, because they were going there as official part of Starfleet or whatever, she would have been able to find out where the ship was. Luxana, yeah. she's the uh, the official Bajoran ambassador to the Federation, isn't she? Betazoid, yeah. She's got, she has, she has positions. Again, this whole daughter of the fifth house, heir to the holy rings, holder of the sacred chalice of reeks. She is up there in Betazoid aristocracy. And so, yeah, she's, she is, and her husband was a high-ranking Starfleet officer. So she's got connections and she can pretty much find out anything that's not classified that she wants to know. So if she wants to know where her daughter's going to be for the next however long, she can just make a phone call. Hmm. Interesting. She's probably the only person uh, outside of Starfleet who can beam aboard the Enterprise and boss Picard around. (laughs) You may go. We haven't touched the sexy, sexy 70s party ship yet. Um, so <laughs> I want to talk about them. It's purple. <laughs> they painted the whole inside purple. It was so purple. Um, so he's been dreaming about this lady his whole life, and he thought that was going to be Deanna. So is Deanna massively older than him? Or is how was he seeing an adult woman his whole life? This is a question that I have from the episode. Because he she has pictures of him growing up drawn in the spaceship but all the pictures he has of her she's an adult so i don't wonder if we only see his more recent drawings of her and that maybe he was also seeing her throughout their childhood and we just don't get pictures of that oh that's a thought yeah because i thought it was weird that they had this whole like lifetime museum to wyatt in their spaceship but he only had adult pictures of the lady he was seeing but maybe they just have different lifespans or something than he does how do you feel about them just never explaining how they, you know, happened to match? Because it's not like humans are a particularly psychic species. If, if like, Wyatt was, like, a Vulcan or a Betazoid, you might be able to explain the other ones away. So, oh, well, they're aliens. They can do that, too. Let's just give it to a psychic uh, alien, but um, Wyatt's human. He is. Yeah, 100% human. <laughs> well, so we have, we already have the example of humans being able to receive telepathic communication because we've had it in encounter at farpoint he must have a high aspirating yeah we saw it in encounter at farpoint right Riker can hear when deanna's really trying to talk to him without using words um he is able to pick up on that so someone who is equally sensitive as a human person on the receiving end of a much more powerful telepath like on the order of a luoxana troy which i am presuming this ariana person was and that's just not information we get about their race that that he would be able to get and it was just impressions right it was images it wasn't clear communication it wasn't my name is ariana and i'm on the purple fun ship with the rainbow bubble and i need you to come find me it was here is who i am so that when you encounter me you will know and maybe that was what the rainbow bubble was doing the whole time could have been oh that's true yeah because so they've been tracking him all this time because they know that he's a doctor that can help them right but could not any other doctor have helped them because it's not like he's a special doctor or am i was i misunderstanding that i guess i was a little confused on that plot point because it didn't seem i think they kind of just didn't spend too much time on that plot point because it wasn't the point of the episode but i was still a little bit confused by why this doctor why did they have to wait for all their people to die off for 30 years while he grew up into a man well maybe it was just that um uh, nobody else wanted to help um because anybody who is exposed to them gets the disease too and dies um 
but he has this lifelong emotional connection to her and that's that that's the the motivation that he would need to stay and help them and save their species <laughs> so the answer is grooming yeah, yeah that's I exactly guess. how i felt about it was it like all of medical science all of the medical establishment had long since given up on them and so this was sort of their hail mary this was like well what if what if we can make a connection to one human and really and in the end he chose to get married to because i mean he could never come back he's now has to stay on their ship forever so it's essentially he's married he yeah. chose to get married to someone side unseen but instead it was the woman that had been visiting him his whole life like he thought he was getting married to so that's also interesting also why didn't the aliens look sick at all like they just looked like perfectly healthy humans you think they could have, like, I don't know, drawn, like, a little, like, diseased tissue on, like, say, the older guy's face or something. <laughs> yeah, they did look really healthy. That was just a makeup budget problem. Like... It was all spent on the riffraff guy <laughs> trying to make him grayer. <laughs> I love Mr. Hom, but yeah, I, indeed. You know, Mr. Hom, uh, the way that he put down drinks... And I even remember Data asked him if he had some human lineage with how much he was drinking... Um, it actually made me think of stories of Andre the Giant because, uh, uh, hang on, I gotta look up the the name of the actor who played Mr. Hom. Uh, oh, I didn't write so it many down. Things. I thought yeah. I wrote it down and I didn't write it down. But my show notes definitely have drunk home, like with an exclamation point in the middle of <laughs> Thank um, you for the drinks, he says on his way well, out. <laughs> so that, that's one of my favorite, like, callbacks in the episode is there's part of the fight is like, he can't even talk while he is well-versed in the art of sign language. And then <laughs> at the end, he definitely can talk because he says, thank Thanks you for, for the, the drinks. drinks. So I wonder if he kept that a secret from um, Deanna's mom. <laughs> he just doesn't talk because he doesn't want to have to talk to her. <laughs> he doesn't want to talk to her. Yeah. <laughs> well, I don't know that he could keep it a secret. She's a betazoid. Oh, that's true. But uh, yeah, Carol Stroykin is uh, the actor's name and uh, he has giantism. And it made me think of stories of Andre the Giant because uh, that guy could like put down an entire like 12 pack in like, I don't know, 10 minutes. Yeah. I just realized where I know him from. He's the giant from Twin Peaks. <laughs> that's that's where I know him from. He's been in a lot of things. Um uh he was also I think in Men in Black. He played like the um the the giant uh bodysuit for the tiny little alien. He's done a lot of things. He's been in a ton of things, but I w- I knew him from something specific and the whole episode I couldn't figure it out till till I just realized he's the giant from when um Oh, he played Lurch in Adam's family. Oh, that also sounds familiar. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that cracks me up though because this was my first uh exposure to him so i don't it, it hasn't even occurred to me to recognize him from anything else because he's mr holm well that's the first <laughs> thing i saw him in too yeah every time i saw him in, in men in black or something else i'd be like hey it's mr holm let me watch him uh uh bow solemnly with that little <laughs> smile that he gives yeah he is truly wonderful and and with so few lines and so such tiny on-screen moments he really gives it like he he serves what we need in this episode okay this is a complete aside but i want to know from both of you who are like avid trekkies that have been watching shows and movies and stuff a lot longer than i have when you sit down to watch the next generation and you're gonna watch like an episode or maybe a few do you sit through the theme every single time or do you skip it um that's an interesting question. When I'm doing them for the podcast, I usually skip it because I want to get to the episode. But <laughs> uh, I don't know. It depends. It also kind of depends on the season, I guess. Uh, mm-hmm. The title sequence is there's very minor changes. But in season five, they do this thing with the uh, the title where they just have like a big like blue drop shadow that comes from behind it. And every time I see that, I know we're in season five, which means the episode is guaranteed to be good. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I do every time. And then this last time when I watched Haven, I skipped it because I was like, let's get into this episode. And um, I felt like I was missing something. It felt weird to skip it. It felt like it belonged there because of the way that it flows from that opening scene to the theme to the ne- the start of the episode. And so I realized that I don't want to skip it anymore. I did it once and it made me feel weird. <laughs> if I'm on a long binge... Um, by, by episode three or four, maybe five, I may start skipping it mm-hmm. for a few episodes at a time and then I'll go back to it. But honestly, remembering I have music is a really powerful force for me. I was a singer for a long time, did a lot of musical theater. 
So I I have the emotional resonance of being 12 and the new episode coming on on Sunday night and being like on the phone with my two best friends on three-way calling, <laughs> sitting through that, waiting to see the episode title and what was going to happen. So that music still very much calls that up for me. Yeah. And it like it puts me in like the right mental place to consume a next generation episode. I think that's exactly what it is. Without that big symphonic opening, I can't I'm just not as much there. And again, if I'm three, four, five episodes deep in a big long binge because say I'm writing an article and I'm on deadline, I may choose to forego it for one or two episodes and then come back to it again. Uh, but if I'm watching less than five episodes, it's definitely going to play every single time. And it still gives me goosebumps. Like, I will still have an emotional reaction to it. Tingles. It gives me tingles. Yeah, Jerry Goldsmith is probably one of the the, the best composers of the 20th century. Um, and oh, this actually <laughs> reminds me, uh, when he passed, I found out because my dad told me, but the way that he told me was just like, oh, I just saw on the news some uh, some composer died and they're doing like a thing on him. You maybe you want to see it. His name's Jerry Goldsmith. And I just look at him. I'm like, you mean you're, you're coming to me and saying some guy, Jerry Goldsmith, dad, <laughs> it's Star Trek. He did Star Trek. What do you mean? Some guy, Jerry Goldsmith, some composer. <laughs> <laughs> my parents didn't read credits like I read credits. Like every time I watch an episode of anything, especially something that's long and I've watched a lot of, I read the credits. Like I'll be sitting there and I'll be watching Buffy and I'll be like, oh, Darla's in this one. Because <laughs> I pay attention to who's in the episodes by the credits. But I feel like people older than us don't pay attention to the credits. I don't know why. I don't. I, I tend to pay attention to the credits, but that's because, like, I spent a lot of time as a below-the-line actor. And so <laughs> I'm like, I want to know who the guest stars are because that's a job right. I've had. And there's something magical about seeing your name on the screen in the credits. Mm-hmm. And uh, those people worked really hard to get those jobs. And by golly, I am going to honor that by seeing their name come across my screen. Yeah, that's a really good point, too, because I love the supporting actors. I like the people like the guy who played Wyatt that shows up in a bunch of things because those people, maybe they're not A-list actor celebrities, but they're the ones that make TV happen. They're the ones that show up and they're the guest stars or they're the person that murdered their wife on CSI or whatever they are. They're the people that really make TV happen. And I love seeing those reoccurring characters. Like we used to see a lot of Buffy characters show up in every show all the time and be like oh the Buffy characters are here like those kind of people really for me are some of my favorite actors yeah they they're they're working actors they are out there auditioning every week they're out there learning sides every week doing something different every week they're having to be another whole ass person <laughs> every week uh, to get their bills paid and and they do a marvelous job of it and yeah this kid who played Wyatt who apparently went on to have an illustrious career as that guy who um, that guy who <laughs> is he does a marvelous job like i absolutely buy everything in this episode everything he gives us from the his sincerity to that moment when he's being devious and he's sneaking things out of sickbay in his little sparkly sequin pocket he um, was so ready to take that guy down he shoved that little thing i don't know what it's called in the, the little uh, inhaler thing yeah into hypo his spray. pocket hypo spray into his pocket he was like i am determined i'm gonna do this and i really i really found him believable um and so yes it's exactly what you're saying thing that you will find again i'm so excited for you to watch more and more of this to discover more and more of the world building that sick bay is huge so the amount of time that he had to have spent figuring out where beverly kept that stuff mm -hmm. and how to put the the ingredients together and where the hypo sprays were kept and like that was so much deliberation that was off screen and done in the background but if you know anything about the size and shape and makeup of that sick bay it's like half of deck 13 or something like it's really huge and and he had to work very hard to make that deception happen it this was not a spur of the moment thing this was not an impetuous thing he had to have been plotting for days because the whole time he was in there gathering the supplies with beverly he would have to have been on the lookout for this 
equipment. Part of me wonders if he's not telepathically inclined or something. Like, if it was Star Wars, we'd call it Force-sensitive, right? Because maybe that's why the the Torellians were able to reach out to him. Maybe he, maybe he has a slight telepathic um, ability to him or something, and maybe that helped him find it faster. Star Trek has something for humans called the Esper rating, and it was established, actually, in the original series in the pilot um, where, oh. uh, where No Man Has Gone Before, because uh, Gary Mitchell, the guy who... Uh, got silver contacts in his eyes and turned into a god. He had a really high esper rating. Uh, esper, which is uh, you know, uh, I think a it's e- magic. Well, it's, no, ESP is what <laughs> it, what they got the esper oh, okay. word from. But um, yeah, I, I would imagine he probably would have a high ranking. Okay, I'm gonna give us all a terrible new headcanon though. Uh, at the time, <laughs> Wyatt was born. The Millers were stationed on Beta Z, so. Um, there is every chance that uh, Mama cheated and uh, Wyatt's half Betazoid oh. and they just don't go there. But uh, Well, you'd have to look in his eyes. <laughs> Are all, uh, okay, I was just thinking that when she said that because I, I was going to point out because you had to tell me that Deanna was wearing black contacts, but it was very noticeable on the mom. The mom's eyes being completely black was very noticeable. But what if if you maybe does every half betazoid, half human have the black eyes, or is it like other genetic traits where maybe sometimes they don't have the black eyes? I'm trying to remember other half betazoids. I know we meet an, uh, a one quarter coming up, mm-hmm. and he doesn't have dark eyes. He's also oh no, I'm not going to say anything else about him. Sorry, nope, no spoilers <laughs> here. But um, we'll chat after you do that episode. But yeah, he doesn't have dark eyes. Interesting. So I kind of like the headcanon that maybe mommy was (laughs) messing around with the milkman kind of thing. And so maybe he is because that would explain more why the the Torellians were able to reach out to him and stuff and why he seems more intuitive than just like a regular old human. You know, I did think it was weird. He gave a Betazoid lady a mood ring. Because couldn't she just control what the flower felt or whatever? Because he gives her a flower that's basically a mood ring. And then it never really comes into play. One time, he, someone's hugging her and it turns blue. I think it might have been him. I'm not 100% sure. It was blue but other in his hand. That, it was blue yeah, it was, in his hand. He had it as blue and he handed it to her and it was as though all the color had gone out of her life. It well, like, it changed. Yeah. It, turns it white. changed to play. It changed to white. Like there was just nothing left there. And I'm like, it's because she's hollow. Because she has to marry this guy who's not Will. <laughs> it did flash rainbow colors first, though. So, uh... and that was me wondering if Deanna could somehow, because you know she has a lot of control over what she sends out psychically. And I thought maybe she could send out like a signal to the flower, like "Don't be showing off my emotions. You <laughs> don't you do it." <laughs> you know. <laughs> Naughty flower. Well, and then there's the the sentient plant later on. So there is, yeah. It, it's kind of funny that Star Trek it, of the threads they didn't run with sentient plants could have been interesting. <laughs> it could have been, yeah. I mean, I thought it was really funny that the plant was just like, "Oh, I'm going to tap on this lady's shoulder and then start crawling down into her lap." I was like, "What is happening in the scene?" <laughs> And then it was always like, oh, it's just a plant. <laughs> they did have, um, uh, in the animated series, there was like a, a plant species that we saw in several episodes. I don't remember its name, but uh, there is uh, other canonical uh, sentient plant species in Star Trek. Oh, oh, and the, one other thing I need to make sure we don't forget to talk about this is there was another what I believe was a 2001 reference. <laughs> couldn't, couldn't go without a 2001 Ari's reference. on brand. Ari's on we brand. We couldn't. Yeah, so at the beginning when the Haven people are like something something they they used our stargate against our will or whatever that to me is a 2001 reference it's not 2001 the movie because they don't refer to it as the stargate in the movie i don't believe um they, but in the book they refer to the jupiter's um monolith the one that he enters to go into the infinite is called the stargate in the book and this was before stargate the movie came out i looked it up it was 94 and this is 87 um so i do think it's a reference to 2001 i think just like they threw on that sonic screwdriver thing they're just throwing in random smatterings of, of sci-fi pop culture and that made me excited as we know they're all nerds find a in way the writing to relate room. it to yeah exactly just they're all nerds in the writing room yeah <laughs> That's very true. So was there anything else on this episode, Amanda, that we wanted to talk about? Uh, mostly just it it gives us something that we don't get. Good Star Trek episodes and good Star Trek books have a 
Star Trek problem, which is some sort of ball of rubber science that gets hurled at the Enterprise that could mean doom, and a human problem where the characters are going through something. And when they connect, those are the best episodes. And this one, if you can look past the cheesy stuff, the the silly suitcase that talks and the sentient plant vine and who's going to go naked and when and all of the big hair, this one does something that very few do, and that is it focuses more energy, if not even more screen time, on the human problem and mm-hmm. on the the character-driven trials and tribulations other than on the the space problem the science problem the thing that could mean doom for the enterprise and the planet and it's it's a smaller tighter more intimate story mm-hmm. and again it's it's all the romantic angst and all the unresolved sexual mm-hmm. tension and the actors just play it brilliantly and i'm yeah i just i really as tacky as it is to look at i really love the, the interpersonal moments in this episode a lot. It really made me like Deanna more. Let me put it that way, because there's a lot of times where I'm like, I want really want to like Deanna, but I haven't been given a reason to yet. And this episode, the way that she acts, the way that she puts herself out there, the way that she ha- she's going to follow tradition is all very relatable. Like she's trying to figure out how to please her family and please herself and keep doing her job that she's gone to school for and now she's you know trying to do what she wants to do with her life all of that was so relatable it made deanna far more of a relatable character to me somebody who's now what is this is the 11th episode so we're 11 episodes into the show i finally have something that i relate to her on yeah marina sirtis said early on that she from what she had read of episodes going into casting like going into starting to shoot she was like so i thought i signed up to be the brains of the enterprise and it turns out i was the chick (laughs) <laughs> so it it this is one of those times when they let her have a beat. They let her have a moment mm-hmm. to just sort of it inhabit the character's emotions in exactly like you said a relatable way. Um right. also if you if you want to be able to talk to me specifically about every single episode, just watch Thirtis and Frakes every time they're on screen together because they <laughs> the way they play this relationship even when they're not talking to each other even when neither one of them is talking at all. It's, it's brilliant, and it builds and waxes and wanes and comes together in unexpected and gorgeous ways throughout the entire course of the series and all the feature films. And then moving forward into the Picard era, like the, the two of them made a choice from the beginning that we are going to play the power of this relationship every time mm-hmm. we're on set together. And it, it works, and you see it, and it translates... In every episode, it's they're both brilliant actors, and I love everything they do with these characters. I'm excited to see where it goes, because I really enjoyed this episode, and I did enjoy the character development, particularly for Deanna, like I was saying, so I'm interested to see where it goes. Okay, well, I think that's it. Thanks for joining us today. I'm Ari. And I'm Gayfesh. And I'm Amanda. And until next time, live long and prosper. Thank you for listening. You can find more episodes on Apple, Spotify, and wherever you get your podcasts. We're on Twitter at RestBothWorlds. Join our Patreon at patreon.com slash RestBothWorlds for bonus content and hear your name at the end of each episode.